everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to episode one of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Really went crazy on trying to figure out a name there. My producer is Lou Pellegrino. Have a big first episode for you. The content of this podcast will be very similar to the one I did with Sports Illustrated. First up is James Andrew Miller, the best-selling author of books on CAA, ESPN, and Senate Night Live. Our conversation starts with an analysis of the new ESPN morning show, Get Up. We also talk about Jim Miller's interview with ESPN president or former ESPN president, John Skipper. Got some excellent roundtables as well. First roundtable, the Athletic Bay Area editor, Tim Kawakami, and BSO, Black Sports Online founder and editor, Robert Littell. Second roundtable, SB Nation writer, Charlotte Wilder, and Boston Globe sports media writer, Chad Finn. So Jim Miller, Tim Kawakami, Robert Littell, Charlotte Wilder, and Chad Finn, all coming up on episode one of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Okay, and we bring in best-selling author, podcast guest for everyone, James Andrew Miller. He is the uh, he's the host of the very popular podcast Origins, which I am now told that over the next couple of weeks they will be releasing full-length interviews that Jim Miller did with all the ESPNers that he interviewed for his Origins podcast on ESPN. That is called Origins Originals. So you will hear the full-length interviews, I imagine, with the likes of John Skipper, Jamel Hill, etc. And Jim Miller, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. I think that is the title of it. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. I mean, you've... You're one of the regulars on the old podcast, and now you're back. All right, Jim, we have to start off with this. I mean, we could start off with so much, but I would like to start off with ESPN's new morning show, Get Up with an Exclamation Point. I understand that it is um, it's a little bit of a fool's errand to make large judgments about a show that's only a week old, particularly on ratings. That said, there honestly, Jim, is no way to spin what has been really, really low ratings the first week. They're lower than what was there before in terms of the sports centers. And the show has not, it has not jumped out to any kind of, um, how would I phrase this? It, 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 just, it has not captured any kind of, in my opinion, news cycle early. And the public does not seem to be jumping at this show as the ratings indicate. So let's take a top-down view to start from you. What have you seen from GetUp, and how do you and how do you evaluate what has been pretty poor ratings so far? Well, um, let's see. If you don't mind, let's let's have a running start for a second because this all started with Mike Greenberg saying he was burnt out basically with Mike and Mike and wanted to do something else with his career and. John Skipper, who was then president of ESPN, signing on to that. I think that, um, to Greeny's credit, he quickly understood, or maybe he thought about this in the beginning, but very soon after we heard the announcement of of him doing the show, um, and we saw him alone with Serena at the upfronts, um, the idea that he was going to be joined um, by others, uh, quickly surfaced, and it became Michelle and Jalen. And I think that 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 the idea of throwing so much ESPN horsepower at one show um, 
automatically suggested that this was something that was going to uh, be a big deal for them. Uh, because it's a big deal for them, I think the headline right now is they still have time. I mean, I believe that this was a show that no matter how much runway they had before it actually went on the air, this was a show that they needed to get up and running to start fooling around with, which is, by the way, um, the story of many shows um, that have come to television. I mean, if you watched Nightline the first night going back, you know, decades or even recent shows, there's a lot of tinkering that goes on with these daily shows. Um, I think that they need to get their act together by the beginning of football season. And I think that they basically have till next year's Super Bowl to, I don't think, you know, I don't think anything's going to happen, for instance, no matter what the ratings are. Um, that said, it's interesting to see what Pataro's patience level is going to be with it versus Skipper's because, um, you know, Skipper gave birth to this. And if he was still there, I think they would have had um, certainly at least a built-in margin of error that they not, may not necessarily have with that. But, um, look, I, I don't think they're thrilled with, their, with the ratings, but I also feel like they've they said it beforehand, which is they knew that they're trying to um, change viewing habits at a very, very competitive day part. I mean, the, you know, the Today Shows and the GMAs of the world, um, those, that segment, that, uh, that day part has been losing viewers, uh, so it's a tough, tough place to come in. Um, it's just there have been a couple things that have been just a tad askew for me, which is including having from the very beginning this reminder on the screen that sports centers on ESPN2, um, it doesn't really <laughs> – why would you want to do that? I mean, why would you, you know, why would you want to remind people that something that they already know um, is, is right on the next channel when, you know, let's just – you give everybody a shot to think maybe they don't need to watch SportsCenter. Maybe they're going to get enough highlights and analysis on this show, um, so they won't have to switch channels. Um, the idea that that was there, I thought, immediately said to the viewers, well, we're not going to, we're not going to do any of those things. So if you want those things, they're next door. And uh, it's a hell of a way to launch a show. Well, that's interesting. Oh, that, that, that... I don't know. That wasn't as curious to me because I always feel that ESPN is trying to promote everything it has on multiple places. So, so let's get into this a little bit because we we talked about this. I feel like we talked about this a year ago, and I think this was one of the rare places we were both in agreement. Um, the show enters the most competitive landscape that exists in linear television between the morning shows, as you mentioned, the traditional GMAs today and CBS's show, and then you have the cable news era in the era of Donald Trump, or the cable news shows in the era of Donald Trump, which are way up and people can't seem to get enough of, depending on where you lean, whether you watch Fox and Friends or Morning Joe. We haven't even mentioned, Jim, the sports shows that still will grab 100,000 viewers or show, in the case of Good Morning Football and NFL Network, and then you go down a little bit, Fox's show grabs a little numbers, and uh, MLB Network does. So it's such a competitive market to launch in. And then secondly, and this is what I want to get you to comment on, um, I, I agree with everything you said. You're probably more wired to like how long a guy like Pataro would give it than I, than I am. But what, what's the catalyst for change here in that I think me and you both agreed that Mike Greenberg is not destination morning television viewing. He's just 
He's he's a fine broadcaster. He's capable enough to sort of move a show along, but he is not the guy who people will wake up the wake up and want to hear what he has to say on something. In my opinion, at least. But they've already recognized that. So so I guess I would say to you is what what, and, and I'm saying listen, you've invested so much money, you got to try to figure it out. But what can potentially be the catalyst to change, to change the show's arc or to get more people interested if the lead host is not generally speaking the uh, an interviewer like Dan Patrick who can pull newsworthy stuff out of people or some kind of dynamic personality that people always want to tune into well look i think they they've already recognized that despite the success of mike and mike uh that they weren't going to go it alone with greeny and i think like i mentioned i think greeny was part of that it wasn't like he had to be talked into it he recognized it so this is you know, this is not the, it's not called the Mike Greenberg show. Right. And I think that the fact that um, Jalen and Michelle are so prominent and like they're, it's, it's an ensemble piece. So I don't think that there is as much uh, riding on, it's, it's not resting on, on Greeny's shoulders like we thought it was um, at the upfront when it was just him alone with Serena. And, you know, I think people had, a legitimate concern about whether or not that was going to that was going to cut it or not. Um, that's nothing against Greeny, but it's just you know he's made his part of his brand is you know he's kind of moving things along and asking some questions, but he's not he hasn't you know positioned himself as a controversial figure that then gets some of those higher numbers, right? Right. I mean he's got a following, but. So I think that they were smart to uh, to include a group dynamic, and because it's a group dynamic, and because it's three hours every day, there's a lot to toy around with. Um, you know, I think I still think that they believe that there's going to be growth to this show, and I think that the timing of it, you know, it was delayed, but I think that the timing of the debut was is going to turn out to be really great because I think they do have till beginning of the NFL season to to really get their act together. And then when the football season starts for that to be, for that to be the show that they really want to do. And for, you know, all the football fans that come on board after the summer to, to want to engage there. Let me ask you a question uh, um, in terms of, um, in terms of optics and, you know, people like me probably overvalue sometimes or overweight optics because, you know, I'm so deep into the inside baseball sports media that, you know, sometimes you just overvalue something that the general public maybe doesn't care about or doesn't know. That said, I wanted to ask you what you thought the fallout, if any, was from the Hollywood Reporter story by Marissa Guthrie, which headlined this show as ESPN plans to wake up woke with new morning show. The key word, obviously, there, the trigger word there is woke. And then within that piece, uh, Marissa Guthrie, who's very wired to ESPN in that world, uh, gave the salaries for Mike Greenberg, Michelle Beadle, and Jalen Rose. So two things. One, there's a headline in there that's sort of indicating that this show may touch some issues that, you know, your traditional sports center didn't. Turns out that's not really true. And then the other thing is these massive mega salaries get published publicly. How did you read both of those things from that Hollywood Reporter piece? Well, um, I guess... I mean, we kind of knew about the salaries, right? Well, you did. You and you. We did. I'm not sure the general public did. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. I'm, by the way, that's not to take anything away from Marissa. I'm just saying yeah. that part, they, they, these were, these were big ticket talent items to begin with. Um, the second thing is, let's remember, aside from even Greeny, they had certain salaries beforehand. They got marginal, I believe two of them got marginal increases, um, because of doing the show, but you know, Beatle's salary was what Beatle's salary was because of her NBA work, right. and Jay Linton's was because of his stuff too. So it wasn't like they were just hired off the street for for that. So that's a little bit of context. But look, here's the deal. I mean, they need to make the show work. They need to make the show work outside of not just justifying the salaries. But here's the thing: if this show doesn't work, ESPN when they're next in conversations with a piece of talent at Fox or NBC or CBS and saying, come over to us um, and we can, you know, we can be the, the home for you that you really want. And we can, yes, you want your own show or you want to raise your profile or something. We can do that. Well, they need to be able to prove that. And I think that there's um, a lot at stake just in terms of the, the world of ESPN, in terms of being able to, this, this network needs to be able to deliver a successful show. It's just as simple as that. Yes, it's hard to deliver it and all that stuff, but you know what? There's got to be a lot of smart people out there, uh, over there, who um, have the ability to take talent that they believe in and talent that has received a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of support from the audience before and turn it into a successful TV show. If they don't, then I think that that's, um, that's a real problem for them beyond the salaries, beyond the salaries. That's, you know, the salaries are significant, but beyond the salaries, that's a, if you fail at doing this show, it's just, it's a, it's just, the ramifications are serious. How much have you watched so far? I, I've watched, I mean, I, I watched, uh, you know, I was in LA for three days, so I was, um, I know I still watched. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I watched a good chunk. So I've watched, so I, you know, I sampled as much as I could this week. And what I found was that the, um, you know, the chemistry of the show obviously is a work in progress. Uh, there, you know, Beetle hasn't worked with Greenberg before. Beetle and Rose have worked together. I'm not sure how much Rose and Greenberg have done outside of the occasional, um, you know, Mike and Mike stuff. And then obviously you put in Booger McFarlane, who I think is a talent, actually. And this week is Damian Woody. So, you know, the chemistry of the show is, is like anything else, a work in progress. Here's what I, I guess, Jim, what sort of struck me was that there's a lot of like kind of prepackaged stuff, what I would call it, you know, trying to like figure out like, you know, what's, you know, who's, who's the, you know, he, it, is this a hot take or is this not a hot take? It, you know, it's, it was a lot of like Sports Nation-y kind of, Stuff which surprised me, and not that I'm looking for the PBS News Hour, but it it really felt a little overly formatted. Uh, well, I think that, that was my overly, that was my. Yeah. The only thing I want to say is I thought the best moment of the week that I saw was when they interviewed Dana White because it was spontaneous, it was newsworthy, given what happened to Conor McGregor, and it just felt like the potential for news or for some kind of viral clip could happen. And I wonder. Um, you know, ESPN, the one thing they have, man, they have an arsenal of people in terms of who can book, who have talent connections. And to me, the one way that you could try to increase the ratings of that show would be to book the hell out of it. And I feel like they could, heading forward, do a much better job of that 
the way the Dan Patrick show, I feel like, is always on the news? Well, I had someone, a senior person, tell me uh, on background that they were surprised by two things the first week. One was it didn't feel like a company-wide effort. You know, one of the things that um, they used to do very well was, uh, it's an old Walsh expression about flooding the zone, where, you know, you just, no matter what else is going on in the ESPN universe, you kind of flood the zone with this promotional cross you know, cross-promotional world of, of the debut of something, right? The, I mean, the best example of that was when ESPN had the World Cup. I mean, you couldn't – it didn't matter whether you're watching a Disney movie or an NFL game or anything like that. The World Cup was inserted into that. And this person felt, and I think to a certain degree they're right, that it didn't feel like the whole – the whole synergistic world of ESPN and, for that matter, Disney was really there. And the second part is to your point, which is that they didn't – I mean, they had some guests, but, you know, the opportunity, given how much lead time they had, um, to really make it, a, you know, a booking show, a, a guest-driven show, in addition to whatever other kind of show they want to have, um, you know, really wasn't there. I think the Daniel White thing, I saw that too. I agree with you. I thought that was, that was great. And that's not to say that every single day you can find somebody right. who's going to be perfectly aligned with the news of the day and make news. But it gets back to the central question, which is why do people want to tune into the show? And if it is to see those three people interact, then that's fine. I don't know if that number is, is really big enough. If it's to see people... Look, every morning on the Today Show, CBS This Morning, and Good Morning America, there's a responsibility that they have to viewers. There's an expectation that it, you know, at 7.07, basically, 7.08, they're going to be um, interviewing somebody or reporting on somebody that is of significance that day. Um, and if they, if the show wants to do that in the sports world, then, you know, I think that in some ways they need to step up their booking game. Um, but if it's not if it's not guests and it's just the three of them, then what else is there? Well, there's the highlights and the analysis um, that you might get on Sports Center, which is then you, you ask yourself, are we differentiated enough? I mean, it's a it's a real challenge. But you said something earlier, which I just wanted to pick up on. Sure. It might feel a little. Um, it's highly segmented and structured right now. That I can forgive them for that because you're trying to navigate your way through three hours and you want to have some branded segments and you want to, you know, have some sort of order to it. But, again, I think the problem is that it was so segmented that at least right now, like, what is the real essence? What is the real reason we're watching the show? It doesn't seem to be front and center I think aside from those three people. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think that's a great point. Like, right now, I don't know what that show is. Like, I don't know why I should watch it outside of – the fact that I, let's say if I'm a viewer, I particularly like Mike Greenberg or particularly like Jalen Rose or particularly like Michelle Beadle. That, that would be the only reason at the moment, I think, that draws you. By, by the way, that's, I mean, sometimes that's enough, right? Yes, because sometimes that is people enough. people turn into Kimmel or, you know, or Fallon or uh, Stephen Colbert or whatever because they want to be with him and they want to see else who, who else is there. Um, certainly the case with the morning anchors. So I think they have a... They have a right to think that just having the three of them there is a start, but it's not going to get them to the promised land. 
um, you know, in terms of, of real, you know, numbers that they're going to be um, delighted with. And that's nothing against the three of them. It just means that there's got to be something else. And, uh, you know, I mean, if it was if it was that this show is going to have on a daily basis the most important guests and the most provocative guests that are going to, you know, so even if you miss the show at 9.30 or 10 on social media, you're going to be seeing stuff that you wish you had seen, you know, and it's, um, it's going to be noisy um, and sticky like that, then that's, that's great. I mean, it's a tough thing to do, but you know what? That's, that's what you got to do. Last one for me is, do you think the show um, gets less runway or more runway under Pataro and Connor Shell versus if John Skipper was around and Connor Shell? Meaning that because Skipper was really invested in this, he's invested in this talent. Uh, he's certainly invested, I thought, in the upcoming Bomani Jones Pablo Torre show. Like under Skipper, would this show get more room to bake? Versus Pataro, you think the same thing? Like it would be. Well, I think I think you and I discussed. I think I mentioned that last time you and I talked about this because it is a legitimate question. Um, I do think, though, that given given the salaries and given the optics of it or whatever, I still think that there's by and large the same timetable that I referred to earlier, which is, you know, figure out this show, get its act together before the beginning of the football season, and then. Let's get through the football season, and after the Super Bowl, um, let's look at that. I think that's kind of a timetable that um, Skipper probably would have had, and I think that Pitaro probably will have. Because, I mean, look, what are you going to do? You can't cancel it after, like, four or five months. Right. I mean, you, what are you going to do? Like, you can't. Right. Yeah, of contracts course. or, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense. So I think the best thing is to continue to be as uh, – is open to development and change, which they are, by the way. You know, I don't think anybody there, including Bill Wolf, who's the chief architect, and Connor, who's head of content, uh, I don't think anybody there was like, okay, that's the show, here's the premiere, and, we, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do. I think that they really always saw it as something that, you know, it's a canvas and they're going to continue to paint on it. Last one uh, on this, actually, just because it came up. Um, put your business hat on. And I, you have some very significant advanced degrees from some crazy business place. Well, are you right, right, Oxford right. or something like that? I, forget, I always forget. Um, but w- how would you, um, in terms of PR, if at all, counter uh, decline, counter uh, a bad ra- uh, bad ratings narrative? Would you would you try to counter those who are going to push that out there, or do you just focus on? the positive parts of the show, if they get good interviews, they do this, they do that. Because as long as the ratings are down, especially on social media, that's going to be a big story. They can't avoid that. You know, but at some point, I mean, look, at some point, social media, and dare I say sometimes newspaper writers, have to catch up with the realities. Because, you know, it's like I watch newspaper writers sometimes, and I write for a newspaper, so I'm included. But to talk about, you know, ratings now versus uh, eight years ago or four years ago for a last big event or a year ago, whatever. I mean, the newspapers are losing subscribers and they're growing digitally. But, uh, you know, so if you just look at pure linear numbers, it's, it's a, you know, everybody knows we're dealing with a more fractured universe. Right. So it's kind of disingenuous. It's a little unfair, but, you know, and I think that's why you see so many uh, 
companies looking at total audience delivery, and obviously there's a lot of eyeballs that are coming in off of uh, off of digital and streaming. And so I think what the advertisers have started to believe, because uh, it's a smart move, which is, okay, look, we have you know this much money to spend, and we want to understand, you know, we want to be there wherever the eyeballs are. I mean, it's not like linear TV is by itself uh, the only compelling vehicle for them. And as a result, I think that, you know, they're, they're, they're smart to, to think about, you know, some of these or to at least talk about some of these other numbers that they're getting. Um, you know, it, sometimes, somehow it seems like an excuse for, like, you know, weaker numbers on, on, on TV, but it's just it's more the nature of how we're consuming content. And if somebody's watching it, uh, you know, streaming it or, uh, you know, in any other digital way, why wouldn't that count? <laughs> it should count. Listen, there's nothing, nothing you've said there that, um, that, I mean, that most people wouldn't disagree with. It's, or, or, you know, I mean, I'll take that back. Everything you said there is legit. The one thing, though, is that you know if the numbers on linear were good, they'd be pushing them out left and right from LaPlaca land. And secondly, you can't make as much money, generally speaking, on streaming and these ancillary ways to do it, YouTube, et cetera, the way you can with commercial advertising on linear TV. So as long as they are a cable company, as long as they're a television business, they have to get that number. I think you'd even agree with that. No, I think that's true. But I also think that one of the reasons why they're, you know, ESPN Plus, which is coming our way and uh, other, I mean, look, those subscription services are going to be, uh, an important source of revenue. And uh, so I, I don't think you can obviously ignore linear and they got to do better. They got to do better with the ratings. Um, absolutely. There's no, there's no question about that. But I think at some point it's fair for them to talk about the total picture as opposed to just linear. Totally fair. Very f- fair. All right. Is there anything else on get up you exclamation point you would like to, uh, you would like to discuss before we move on? No, I just I think we're going to continue to see changes, and uh, you know I think uh, we should expect that they know what they want to be by uh, you know sooner rather than later. By the way, what was the experience like without me on the Sports Illustrated Media podcast? Did you enjoy your time with Trina, or was it was it different? <laughs> oh my God, I think uh, we got to up the therapy for you. That's well, that's why I am the son of a shrink, so it's it's that's no surprise. All right, let's before we get to. Uh, I do want to ask you about Pataro on Monday Night Football. Since I haven't talked to you since this came out, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the John Skipper interview that you did, um, which obviously got an inordinate amount of press um, about John Skipper basically, not basically, I don't know why I keep saying basically, John Skipper acknowledging that the reason he resigned from ESPN or, you know, or was forced out by executives, however you want to sort of, Front it is that he had a cocaine problem and was being extorted because of that cocaine problem. Before we get into a couple specifics on the interview, how did Jim? How did this interview come about? And was it in person? Did you? Was it over the course of multiple times? Can you give some people just the background of how this comes together? Because this doesn't come together in just one phone call. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, I've I've interviewed uh, him many times, and we've. Uh, you know, known each other for more than a decade, and uh, I think that I, you know, I reached out after that 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 day that he resigned. The irony is that the Thursday before we had he had called me and said, "Let's get together 
next week because we were going to be doing a uh, a big interview. He hadn't done a big interview in a while, um, and it's just about ESPN past, present, and future. Um, and so uh, it was just, you know, that was just already something we were talking about. But I think that when uh, he went away and then he came back and we talked and um, I – you know, we talked about doing it, and I was glad that he wanted to do it with me. I think that there were a couple things that were really, really screwed up and really cloudy, and two of which were, um, and you know this because you were asked yourself, um, one, whether this was a, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, Weinstein situation, and, they, and drugs were a cover-up, and there were many people who were saying that was the case. Right. And it was like literally every single day I was getting – you know, uh, somebody was saying, oh, well, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. So, you know, one was the ability to clarify the circumstances and to uh, put the fire out on what the you know, circumstances that weren't the case. And then the second thing, which was really, I thought, got to be incredibly convoluted, was the timetable. Um, the Wednesday before John resigned, he had given this big, big presentation to basically all the ESPN talent. And, you know, I had a lot of people from ESPN asking, like, so wait, when he was talking to us, he already knew he's going to be resigning, like, in five days? That's, that's really screwed up because, you know, he talked like he was in it with us for the future. Right. And I think that because the timeline got so screwed up, one of the one of the things that I tried to do was deconstruct that timeline. And, of course, it turned out that up until Friday afternoon, I mean, John Skipper that Friday woke up, took a shower, uh, never thinking that he was going to resign. Uh, he was going to have to resign from ESPN. Um, that's just, you know, that, that, that point. And, by the way, when the interview came out, a lot of people you know, commented about that, that they were glad to see that clarity on there because they didn't want to think that he had been – lying to him. So those two things, if nothing else, I mean, there were a lot of other things that went on in the interviews. And then I guess to your point, your question, um, we met maybe four times. I guess there was probably at least four hours. And the exercise for the Hollywood Reporter was to boil it all down to 3,000 words. And um, I, I did it based on on those kinds of things. What were the real circumstances? What was the real timetable? Um, you know, somebody said to me, oh, I wish I would have known who the extortionist was. And it's like, I was like, well, you know, that's not as important as, at least to me, um, you know, when he decided to, uh, when he had to resign or, you know, whether it was a drinking problem or not. Because remember when John, shortly after John, left the company, he was photographed in a bar, and people were like, why is he drinking? Like, he's supposed to be, you know, have this substance abuse problem, and I mean, I knew it was cocaine, and it's like, you just got to spell that out, so poor guy can go and have a drink sometime for the rest of his life. All right, a couple things here um, that you just that you just hit on. Um, were there By the any- way, they were all in person. Okay. Were, the were there any restrictions placed on the interview by the subject? Nope. Okay. Uh, no, and obviously he wound up, uh, as you could tell from the interview, he wound up saying more than he wanted to, but um, he was really good about the fact that, you know, we were 
We were on the record when he said that about the extortion. Um, okay. The, um, you mentioned this, but I want to ask it specifically. Um, should you, uh, wh- why, why did you not ask him about who was extorting him? Because I do think that if there's one thing that feels like it's sort of, at least as a reader, you, you want to know that there's more to this story because it, it strikes me that who is extorting him is directly the cause of why he is resigning this position. But in your case, you didn't think that was as important. So I want to get into your head as to well, why you who, thought that. Who extorted him? Like, if, uh, if I asked him, so who extorted you? Oh, it was a guy named Alan Jones. Or it was a, it was a woman named, uh, you know, Sharon Smith. I could care less. What I did, what I cared about, and remember I had, you know, 3,000 words to play with, and, you know, at some point I'm going to do something else with the, the information that I have. But um, in terms of, like, what was important and material at that point, what was important was he was being extorted. Right. Um, I don't really – if I – if I had mentioned a specific name, um, you know, and that presumes, by the way, that John knew the specific name, um, uh, you know, I think that that wouldn't have materially changed, uh, you know, the people's takeaway. I'm not saying that defensively. I just, I just mean it from a, you know, from a journalistic point of view. Um, I, I think that the people could see, though, that the link that I wanted to make was this is a guy who um, – said he didn't use daily, didn't use at work. So the question is, you know, why do you think you might be an addict then if you've been able to create such a powerful duality in your life for more than a decade, uh, close to two decades, I believe he referred to. And the, the essence of it was, and the Gladwellian tipping point, is that on a certain night when you're – traditional, reliable, secure supply is not in front of you, if you need, if you feel like you want to party that night so much that you're willing to go to a different, unreliable source to get it, then that's something that's going to make you think, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe I do need this. Maybe... This isn't as um, compartmentalized as I thought. And that, for me, was the powerful link because it didn't make sense. Like, wait, if you've been using for that long, like, why haven't you, why haven't you gone into rehab or why haven't you dealt with it? Well, the answer is didn't feel like he needed to because he compartmentalized it and it never, you know, according to him, uh, you know, affected his work. And by the way, parenthetically, um, there are some people now who are conveniently trying to push toothpaste back in the tube and saying, aha, yeah, I knew it because he left me a voice message. Somebody called me and go, oh, yeah, well, you know, I kind of knew it because he left me a voice message once and it sounded like he was really hyper. And I was like, really? Well, hold on a second. Weren't you the person on December 18th, along with the rest of the world, who said that they were so freaking shocked that they had no idea that he was user, that he was around, that you were around them all the time? You can't have it. You can't have it both ways. And by the way, there are a lot of people who don't use quote, uh, Coke, who leave hyper voicemails. <laughs> Maybe it's just he was actually, you know, upset about something, or that's, you know, it doesn't have to be that it was Coke. So this, this kind of re-engineering, once you hear that it's Coke, like, oh, yeah, no, no, it did affect his work. You know, I think that's just bullshit. Um, I really do. But I thought it was important for people to understand 
the connection, you know, why using that, that particular night uh, is inextricably linked with recognizing that he had um, an issue. Let me ask you, let me, let me, um, and this is not to knock your interview, but it's, it's more of a general observation, and that is it's very hard for me to swallow as both a reader and just as someone obviously who's covered ESPN that someone's prolonged cocaine use does not impact them professionally. I, I just, I, it's very hard to, it's very hard to take John Skipper saying, uh, I was unusually clever in devising ways to separate my professional life from my personal life. I realize that's him saying that, but just if you step back for a second, it just, it, the, the need to get cocaine would just be driving you while you are in your professional position. When he answered that question, did you have any skepticism? Did, how did you take that answer? Cause that was one that came off to me that it's very hard to swallow that a guy who ultimately resigns from this can't, can't can create these two parallel worlds where they don't interact with each other? Well, I thought two things. I think I said it to him at the time. I go, one, well, if you don't use every day, if you don't need to use at work, then I don't understand where's the addict part of this. doesn't sound like an addict to me. I'm not. By the way, I, in between the first and second interview, I reached out to two experts in the field just to talk to them about some of the dynamics. And, of course, one of them is this issue of denial. And so I, there was a long stretch in the interview. I think he, um, you know, he came to my place and we sat down and we like went through, um, basically gave him a, you know, deconstructed the whole issue of denial. Was he in denial? Was, you know, when was he really thought that he had an issue and all that stuff. And um, I think that, those were the two things that immediately came to mind, which was then you're not an addict. If you're really able to just, you know, if you've just been using um, outside of work and not every day, and uh, I think, you know, one of the operative words he used initially was occasionally, then why do you think you have a substance abuse problem? And that's why it was important for me to point out that night. Look, if, you, if you're the president of ESPN and you have reliable sources, and one night your sources are dried up, but you're still gonna like venture out like to 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 get something. Then you know what? I think he's smart at that point. Yep, you got a problem because uh, you know you're you're pretty visible, um, and you have distinctive looks. And uh, chances are, I mean, not that everybody knows who you are, but. You know, I mean, he's got a very distinctive voice. He's got a distinctive glasses. He's got, like, whatever. It's like you're you're certainly. Let's put it this way: you're certainly rolling the dice. Right. That you know, um, doing that, uh, you're going to be somebody's going to recognize you. So I think that that in his mind, I think that was smart. That you you recognize if I'm able to jeopardize my existence um, in order to get something that night, then you know what I um. I probably do have a problem, and it explains also why, up to that point, he didn't think it because he was. I mean, look, the truth is, we it's it's we have to believe him because he was able to compartmentalize it. I mean, I can't tell you how many people who thought they really knew John Skipper, right? Because this is a guy who was 
very well liked, very social, had a lot of people that um, travel, you know, they, they would travel to events together and all this stuff, and they were around, and they would, and they said to me, look, I was around, I was at 11 o'clock at night, and I saw him the next morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's impossible. Like, you know, he didn't look like it, whatever. So there was a lot of disbelief. So clearly he pulled it off. Clearly he was really good at it, and he picked his, um, his moments very carefully. In some sense. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, clearly in some sense, yes, but I think you can't really know how, how, how it didn't or didn't impact him. Um, on a given day, because you really, you know, you'd have to you'd have to know when the use exists, and you'd have to know how the use impacts the job. It's just hard for me to believe, you know. It's just even somebody who sort of quietly goes to the bar during the middle of the day because they need to get a drink. You know, they're either an alcoholic or a weekend alcoholic. It just, you know, it's hard. <laughs> and again, I'm just I I don't know. It's just that's that was one for me that was puzzling. In that, how could you really compartmentalize this? But maybe there are people. I don't know. Uh, he had a horrified look on his face, and I'm so glad that we were doing it in person because I asked him, I said, listen, I'm just curious. Like, uh, you know, you woke up one morning and uh, decided to uh, call Richard Sandomir of the New York Times and say that you had decided that um, you weren't going to renew Bill Simmons' contract. I mean, Simmons found out about it on Twitter. Right. And I said, um, that's a pretty uh, – I mean, obviously, Simmons had been on Dan Patrick and had said some things about Roger Goodell again, which is, as we know, the third rail of, uh, of ESPN life. And, uh, but I said, I'm going to ask you, like, I'm curious, did you party the night before or did you party that morning? Were you like, like, were you copus mentis, uh, you know, when you did that? And he just looked hard. He goes, yes, of course there was. That, was, that wasn't some, you know drug-fueled, uh, crazy decision, I didn't, I didn't, you know, he said, I did not conflate um, usage with, uh, with my work life. I didn't make any decision. I never made any decision whatsoever in um, an unaltered state. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that you were thinking that, I mean, I, I actually think I may have asked him like two or three others, and it became clear. He's like, no, I never, ever, ever. He said, and he said, by the way, he said, I would tell you, Jim. I would tell you, like, oh, yeah, well, there was that one time where I decided to, uh, you know, I, I was hoping he would say it was that time that I decided to pay John Gruden over uh, $6 million, but uh, alas, no, he was totally sober on that one. Let me, uh, let me ask you one last one on this, uh, two last ones on this. Uh... One, uh, you received some criticism of this interview. Uh, did you read any of it? Did you did you have do you have a reaction to it? Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I was I was pleased. I was pleased that uh, I don't know. By and large, I don't know. Maybe I'm. I don't know. I think that people seem to to like it, and they like the fact that I kept on going after him. I guess the uh, the criticism. Correct me if I'm wrong. That I saw was that I didn't ask about, like what you brought up. I didn't ask more about the extortionist. Um, and uh, what else was there? Uh, basically that, and, uh, I mean, listen, we all get this kind of criticism, that you're too close to Skipper to really oh, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah, do yeah. a hard-edged interview with him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, listen, I don't mind the second one. That's kind of like that, you know, I think people do that. People say that about uh, – you know, r- reporters or people who cover subjects uh, a lot. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I think if somebody was 
I, I mean, I tried to be respectful in the interview, um, so maybe people thought that I was being too nice to him, but I think the guy's, you know, was going through a tough time, and I think he deserved the respect of the questions that I asked. Um, I, yeah, I don't really, I mean, you know, it's fine. I mm-hmm. mean, on any given, on any given day, uh, you know, somebody's going to find fault with what you do, and that's just part of doing it. It's fine. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Last, um, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Last one on this. I, I do want to know because I think you're probably the person who can provide the most insight. So why, why did he, one, why do you think he talked to you? And then secondly, um, it seems very clear that he wants to get back in because he's, you're going to talk to him again. I think he's clearly going to do more interviews with you, if not other people. What is this a prelude to, if anything? Well, I think when you go through, um, when you go through, first of all, he talked to me because I think that there was enough confusion about his departure, um, particularly given the two areas that I mentioned before, um, the Weinstein and the timetable issues, that um, I thought that he saw some value in um, making that clear. And by the way, I think that a lot of people, after reading the interview, um, were, did understand better and, uh, and were and and thought it was, you know, valuable that he talked, particularly to put those two things to rest. Right. Because I mean, you don't want to. It was it was tough for him for people thinking, oh yeah, you used the drugs as an excuse. We we hear there's going to be like you know six women who are coming forward about this or that or you know no it's alcohol no it was you know heroin no it's I mean he had a there were like so much there was so much stuff out there so. I think he was, you know, that was certainly a, a great benefit to, to, to him. As, regarding the future, look, the guy's 62 years old, and I think that when you go through something that he went through at that age, you're, you know, you're kind of standing there at the proverbial fork in the road, and you're like, okay, am I going to, you know, go and uh, play golf and just, just uh, kind of disappear, or do I still feel like I got a lot of gas in my tank and I have something to contribute? And I think there's never been a nanosecond when John Skipper hasn't thought that he wants to remain relevant, that he wants to um, still be engaged, that he still has a lot of things that he can, uh, you know, contribute. And I think that, you know, the truth is that there have been a ton of people reaching out to him um, because, uh, you know, it's not like people didn't think he was smarter. He doesn't know the business. you know, and uh, so I think he's going to have, I think he's going to have a really good future um, moving forward. I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see the decisions that he makes. Um, but I think he's, uh, you know, I, th- I think he's well positioned for uh, for for a new chapter. That's interesting. Um, so let, let's, you know, I was going to eventually get to Pitar in the NFL, but I want to, we'll end on this. I want to stay on this. So you are someone who's um, who has talked to a lot of executives in the media business given your best-selling books does will skipper have to do anything in terms of an interview with any of these people to assure them that whatever problems he has are either in the past etc cetera, etc cetera, or by virtue of the fact that he was the president of espn at one time he was arguably the most powerful person in sports does that alone is that alone going to get him a job elsewhere at a company that's not as big as espn that's because if he was just your average guy and the the company knew about the average guy having a cocaine problem, he might not be hired. But this is a different guy in that he once ran the, the biggest brand in sports. Right. Well, I think, 
having run the biggest brand in sports um, certainly gets the interest of a lot of people. That is a big job. Right. ESPN produces more uh, content than any other. You know, uh, it, it's a, just a, it's an amazing machine, even with all its faults. And I think that uh, I think that there are people out there that. Um, you know, want that kind of experience and want that kind of insight. Um, but the other part of it is that I think that, you know, one of the reasons, again, that he did that interview was because um, not only in addition to putting some of those issues to rest, but signaling that he still wants to stay in the game. And I think that after that interview, people read that interview, they understood more about the circumstances. And as a result, um, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I think that it's fair to say that, People reached out to John and said, you know, hey, listen, um, I just read it, and I understand it now, and, uh, you know, let's, let's talk. I mean, would, you know, I'd love to, to, to talk to you about some opportunities because they were able to understand it in a larger context and particularly understand what it wasn't about. Mm. So, um, you know, I think that that was, uh, that was, you know, quite valuable for him. All right, before we go... Uh, is there anything else you would like to discuss? This is the first ever episode of this podcast. I will leave the uh, I will leave the final discussion point to you. You want to talk about something away from media? I mean, well, was, was, I mean, was, the, the Madison, Wisconsin, or what would you like to talk about? I think we have to do some work on your on your training issues, and maybe three times a week, one hour a week. My training we'll issues. Get a, yeah, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy. Uh, you know how much therapy? Yeah. You know how much therapy is in New York now? By the way, like. Uh, to see a, uh, um, you know, like a traditional psychoanalyst, like it might be like three hundred dollars an hour. That is, I mean, oh. that that is crazy, right? Well, what, what, is in, what is it in? What is it in? What is it in the woods? What is it in? Yeah, a GoFundMe. What is it? What is it? In, uh, what is? What do you think therapy costs in the, the woods of Pennsylvania, where you are? Is it cheaper, or is um, it the same kind of um, price range? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, but um, you know, it's one of those things that. Uh, you know, uh, I would I would hope that people who who need it um, get it. Yeah, I'm, listen, uh, I'm a huge supporter of it. I, I mean, uh, the I think the whole world could benefit from therapy. Certainly, political leaders could. I'll give you that. Um, but no, really, good best wishes on this newest endeavor. And uh, all right, well, I appreciate I that. When are you Toronto back? It's a really cool place. When are you on another sports media podcast so I can write that down? I have I have no. I have, <laughs> You're not I have booked no at the moment. I'm <laughs> trying to uh, focus on doing my podcast and some uh, writing that i have to do and uh you know but it's it was nice of you to invite me today when is it what what's what's your next book gonna be you got anything coming um you're gonna probably announce something this summer really yeah. all right oral history or something else uh yeah i don't i'm not quite sure how it's going to be framed but uh but i'm looking forward to it and uh you know, really excited about uh, future chapters of the podcast. Oh, by the way, do you, has what is the latest on the ESPN movie based off your book? Where are we with that? Um, I think they have a, um, a star and a director, but I'll, I'm I try and be I, I want to stay in my lane as just the the humble screenwriter of it, and <laughs> you know, uh, don't want to do anything that, that's going to. Uh, I think the studio will announce you know whatever they want to announce when they're ready. Wow, um, but. Uh, I would say it's you know happy to hear it's still alive and well and moving forward. Daniel Day Lewis is Michael Wilbon. <laughs> 
Daniel Day Lewis is Michael <laughs> Wilbon. There's so many. He's that good. An, he's that good an actor, is what I'm saying. He could oh be. my God. Okay. Well, there All right. we go. Well, by the way, the last thing is, so they have. You don't have to tell me this, but I, I realize I'm, I'm bothering you already. But like, so if they have a star, the thing about your ESPN book is it's an ensemble oral history. Who's the star? Simmons? Well, I'll let them Berman? announce who that star is. But um, I'm very, uh, I'm very thrilled that uh you know they read my script and uh, wanted to do that so i'll let them uh i'll let them talk about that but uh are you do you are you're kofi anon you're a diplomat you're not saying anything but i respect that (laughs) all right jim miller is the best-selling author of uh his book on espn best-selling author of caa best-selling author of the saturday night live oral history he's got his origins podcast which uh i wrote this down here origins originals is coming out where He's releasing the full-length interviews over the next couple of weeks of all the ESPNers he interviewed. So that's like 20-something full-length interviews, right? 30? Maybe a little more. You know, I have a tendency to be obsessive. I love that. All right, I'll be I will say that. that some of them, though, um, are absolutely, uh, I mean, you know, everybody was, was fun. But uh, I think Oberman's is over, over an hour, and Dan Patrick's is, uh, is about an hour. Like, some of them are really, um, they're pretty raw. Um, they're, pre- they're pretty raw. They, these people go to some um, special places. All right. We look forward to it. All right, again, thank you. The first time I did this podcast, my first guests, I believe, were Rachel Nichols and Adam Schefter, and now it's Jim Miller. So I'm doing very good well, on prominent, down market. prominent media figures. Jim Miller, check out all his work. Follow him on Twitter. Jim, thank you very much for joining us on the Sports, no, thanks for having sports me. Media luck. Podcast. I appreciate it. See ya. Say hello to Jimmy okay. for me, Jim. Take care. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Miller, everybody. All right, my thanks to uh, Jim Miller for that conversation. Uh, He was on the previous podcast many, many times, and I was glad to have him on this debut one. And now we turn to our first roundtable, and we have two people who I have uh, immense respect for. Tim Kawakami is the editor-in-chief of the Athletic Bay Area, my new colleague. Robert Letal, you know that voice. He's been on this podcast before. He's the editor and founder of Black Sports Online at BSO. On Twitter, guys, thank you very much for joining me. Let's start right away. This will sort of piggyback off something I talked with Jim Miller at the top of that conversation, and that's Get Up, um, ESPN's very big foray into morning television, trying to create their own version of uh, a Sports Today or GMA. So far, Tim, the ratings have uh, have been really no way to spin it. They've been bad. And I wonder from your perspective, not sure how much you've seen of this, but you certainly covered media and ESPN before. What did you make of the first week, both on a content basis and the fact that they did not get off to um, they did not get off to the rating start they wanted at all? Yeah, I mean, I know other people have talked about this. I, I've caught it, you know, here and there. And I just as a viewer, I, I'm surprised at how slow it seems. It just feels slow to me. Hmm. I don't, I don't can't tell you why I thought it was going to be peppier. I thought there was going to be more kind of like you just had to watch something and I don't, I don't feel it. I don't see it. Uh, I, I'm a guy who turns on the, you know, the TV at seven o'clock in the morning, West coast time. I kind of want, I, I need to be braced for something or else I'm going to start flipping around or just look for highlights from the previous night. Uh, and, yeah, the drumbeat was, what, more than a year long? However, three years long for this thing? <laughs> right. Uh, and when you do have this kind of conversation, and you're ESPN, and you're reinventing yourself, they probably reinvented themselves, what, two or three times since they announced this thing was going to happen, uh, and this was going to be a big part of it, I think you need to deliver more than they have. Uh, 
uh, or at least for the perception. You know, it's all perception. We know they're going to stick with the show. They've put a lot of money into it. They've got a lot of salary into it. I've read that from Richard Deitch, I believe. Uh, and <laughs> there's a lot of emotional investment in this. But when you, you're gonna, I think when you're going to open this kind of, it's almost been like a subtle opening, just the actual shows. There just haven't been anything that people have talked about. There hasn't been anything that, that has changed, you know, what I think about morning television, morning sports television. You kind of want to do it quietly and not, not with, a, you know, building a studio for a year and a half and talking about who the other people or partners are going to be on the show. Uh, I think the whole thing has been a setup for a letdown. Now they have to, you know, they can deliver a great show in two months and they won't be talking about it that much. But I think the, this is probably about as poorly as you can, you know, open up something on this big of a stage. Uh, and I'm surprised how poorly it kind of has been presented. I'll put it that way. Hmm, it's interesting, Robert. So to, to sort of give what Tim was saying, initially this was going to be Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick moving to New York City to do their show there. That eventually gets uh, uh, shot down. Uh, Mike Greenberg leaves Mike and Mike, forms his, uh, wants to be a soloist, eventually gets uh, fronts his own show. They announced that May of 2017. It doesn't launch until uh, last week. And now you are up to date in terms of where we are with Get Up. Like Tim, how did you see the, uh, how did you see the initial week? Well, I think ESPN is very stubborn. And I, I think this is a case of them probably realizing early on that, that this wasn't going to work. But because they're ESPN and they're, the, you know, the worldwide leader, they're like, we're going to force it on you. You know, you know this show is the Roman Reigns uh, of, of ESPN. They're like, we're going to shove it down your throat and you're going to like it regardless. And, and I think they made some good decisions in trying to bring in uh, Beetle and, and Jalen Rose to try to spice it up. Uh, but I think once people get in their mind that they're just not going to like it, it's very difficult to change that opinion. And I think the show in and of itself, before it even aired, kind of had soured on people. People had already made up their minds. And they're not going – they're not getting up – no no pun intended. They're not getting up to watch it to, see, you know, to have their minds change. Uh, they already have their routine. They already have what they're watching uh, in the morning. And if you can't get – an audience to even give it a shot, uh, that doesn't bode well uh, for the long term. At, at least with something like The Six, at least initially, people gave it a shot. You know, people were excited about it. People, you know, their, their you know, ratings to start uh, were pretty solid because people were interested in it, and then, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff happened. This is not even getting a shot from the beginning. And, and my question is, is just how long, you know, do you go with it uh, because you have sunk all of that money into it. How stubborn are they going to be, uh, keep putting Greeny uh, in the main event, uh, so to speak, before they you know, decide to pull the plug or make some major changes? Now, first of all, get up would kill for the ratings of the six. And by the way, Robert, what a shot at Roman Reigns. Uh, the guy was the <laughs> WWE World Heavyweight Champion and, survi- and survived uh, like six or five F5s from Brock Lesnar. That's, that's a bit of a shot there. Um, we'll get Thank to wrestling. Blame- We'll get to WrestleMania. We'll get to WrestleMania in a couple minutes, Robert. I know you're itching to talk yeah, about. This. He's trying to skip over a bunch of topics. Robert, here, I know. Right to I feel like the Nakamura Styles match was a little disappointing, but anyway, all right, we'll get to that. Uh, Tim, one thing I have not asked you, and I certainly have asked all the other um, roundtable people on this podcast, but again, you're someone who has a great perspective on the sports media, given that you covered for a long time before you became more of a general sports columnist, and what you're doing now at the Athletic is. Um, is what do you think of the narrative that 
is, and it's certainly being pushed by a lot of opportunists. But I, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the narrative out there that anytime ESPN even hints at the idea of talking about social issues or hints at the idea of talking about something political, and as we all know, sports are intrinsically linked to politics, so that whole argument's silly. But, you know, th- there's a group of people that will pound them on that. And and we saw that a little bit with Get Up when the Hollywood Reporter, yep. you know, sort of mentioned that they, that maybe Jalen Rose or others might talk about... Um, well, a, they, put in, they put in the headline. Right, they, they put, put Woke in the, in the headline, and of course, yeah. you know, that the the... the that of course keys off a ton of people who are going to now yep. mock ESPN. But I have I've just not asked you this because you have not been on this mm-hmm. podcast. But what have you made of this narrative that has been pushed now for a couple of years that somehow ESPN is, um, you know, it's MSNBC, it's MSNBC three. Yeah, yeah. So I just think we've seen what's happened in the sports world magnified in the political world, and we've all gone through it. The things I've written about, obviously, with Kaepernick's protests happening, you know, in the Bay Area, I saw it firsthand, and the ripples are actually coming out from sports to the political world. I really believe that. A lot of this, this, uh, you know, we can ever, we can judge how we view the, the uh, voter slash fan reactions to a lot of things, uh, however we want to, but it's, a lot of it's coming from sports. It's, yep. it's that, this, this rabid reaction and this, Un, you know, disbelief of anything but what I want to happen. I saw it happen in sports, and then kind of translate over to to America at large. And I think it, you know, ESPN's in, in a little bit of a you know tough situation is because you want to comment on it. They have personalities who can speak about it quite thoughtfully. Some maybe not so thoughtfully. Uh, and you don't want to not talk about it because it's a huge issue. And the players and the owners and the coaches are all in the middle of it. Uh, maybe they've had some moments where, where they've gone over a line at some point, but may, that's maybe going over the line part of this, too. It is a third rail. There's no question about it. There's 40% that hate it, 40% that love it, 20% that probably are going to tune off to the whole thing. But, I, I yeah, they have a set of – critics that will jump on them for anything and i don't know what espn can do about it at this point I, I i don't often have empathy for the espn powers that be i do not on this one i do because i don't know what you're supposed to do when when a kaepernick situation happens or we see him and as i've written about him this if this isn't a blackballing by nfl it's the closest thing that'll ever be in our lifetimes to right. a blackballing of a player for a protest what are you not, not you're supposed to not talk about it so uh, it's a setup that they're kind of in a difficult point but I, I, I feel for them, and it's going to keep happening, and you're going to see Clay Travis, and you're going to see Fox News go go crazy about it. But that's America now. It's it's sad, but that's America now where it's just going to be tripwires for a lot of things. And I've tripped on them myself. And Richard, I know you have. And Robert, I know you have. I don't know that you can get away from that in sports anymore. You just kind of have to accept that, I think. Yeah. Oh, he's certainly being blackballed. I'm happy to say it. It yeah. doesn't even seem yeah. like a big take. Uh, Robert, before no. we move on, um, you know, you're somebody who's, um, you know, you've had your Twitter wars as I've had. You've sort of, you've seen the landscape of how um, you get some online mobs sort of heading your way. I agree with Tim in the sense that I think this is very tricky terrain for ESPN, I've always thought that because it's tricky terrain, they should just they should be who they are. If they're if you're going to hire Jamel Hill and Michael Smith, let them be who they are and stop reacting every single time someone does something, including by the way the president of the United States. 
But generally speaking, they've been very defensive and they have not figured out um, how to counter a lot of these opportunists. And they're not really great at very dirty PR pool, which a lot, which is how you've seen a lot of times the Fox News PR group uh, play in that ballpark. What um, I'm just curious if you if you're ESPN on all this stuff, do you react? Do you let it float off your back? What do you do? Well, in, in my opinion, ESPN is trying to appease everyone. And when you try to appease everyone, uh, you normally just piss off everybody. Right. I think they're, they're trying to the left and the right and the liberals and the conservatives and the Republicans and the Democrats and black people and white people. And it's like they're trying to do everything for everybody, and it's just not working out. And instead of, like you said, just letting people be themselves. Um, I, I mean, once Jamel left, you know, the six, and started doing the other stuff. She seems the happiest I've ever seen her in a, in a very long time because she's able to do the things that she wants to do without that kind of cloud hanging over her. And I think it's helped the undefeated. I think it's helped her uh, as well with her profile. Uh, I don't know why they don't do that. I don't know why they try to pigeonhole certain people. It's obvious that Mike Greenberg, for example, doesn't feel comfortable talking about some of these issues. He's uncomfortable with it. He doesn't want to say the wrong thing. He, he's vanilla. He's mayonnaise. He doesn't want to say the wrong thing. He doesn't want to get mixed up in it. But you can't give a guy like that a show where he's the star and people talk about all of these controversial issues all day and your star is scared to, to make a point, you know, about it. You know, I say a lot about Stephen A. Smith and, you know, the Jason Whitlocks of the world. But the reason that people pay attention to them, even if it's in a negative way, is because they're saying wild stuff. <laughs> So it, it just to me that they, they want to check every box, and by trying to check every box, uh, they're, they're missing the mark, you know, kind of with everyone. Everybody's upset. Robert, I think the big question is whether Mike Greenberg is Miracle Whip or Hellman's when it comes to mayonnaise. I'm going <laughs> to examine that. Um, all right, let's – but that's a good take, though. I, I totally agree yeah. with you. You've actually nailed it on the fact that well, when you try to appease everyone, you end up appeasing no one, and you end up in a bad – bad position that said their whole business is to try to get as many eyeballs as possible on their network and ultimately eyeballs equal money and that's why they'd rather play at middle of the road um tim the nba playoffs are coming up obviously very very big story where you are given golden state and uh surprisingly will be in the number two slot as opposed to the number one spot which i think everybody thought from the western conference but tim i look at the i i'm trying to get a feel for how uh, the NBA television ratings will be in the playoffs. They've had an excellent season. The numbers are up. And I think just ostensibly, I think people are excited about these playoffs. That said, it's so matchup-driven. And when I look, let's say, at the East, Toronto-Washington, I don't know how big like uh, a market there is for that. Uh, Boston-Milwaukee seems potentially interesting. Philly-Miami because of Philly. Maybe everybody hang. Maybe everybody's still going to watch LeBron because uh, Cleveland, Indiana. But I, I don't know. I, um, the West for sure looks fascinating to me, and I wonder, Tim, just as an overview, you think the NBA remains as hot as it's been during the regular season in the playoffs? Yeah, I do. I definitely do, and I think the the Warriors' vulnerability is part of that. Uh, you know, you, dominant teams get ratings. We all know that. People complain about sixteen and one in the postseason last year, but the ratings were good because the Warriors are fascinating to watch. But I think, you know, the fact that you can think that they might lose in the first round. I don't think they're going to, but without Steph Curry out there, uh, there is a, at least an argument about it. And then going into the second round, and if it should be in the Western Conference Finals against the Rockets, 
Uh, I'll just point point here. I, I don't know that a ton of people around the organization are totally surprised they're number two. This is fourth year of a, of a lot of playoff games. Uh, there was going to be wear and tear. We're seeing it. That's all part of the conversation. It's kind of made for a really clunky regular season for the Warriors. The Rockets have been fantastic. Uh, the conversation is good. It's a good discussion about wh- when or where this thing might end for the Warriors this season. I don't think it ends as the mini dynasty, but it ends maybe going to the four straight finals. Uh, and LeBron is fascinating. And the vulnerabilities are interesting there, too. So I think, you know, stardom plus vulnerability plus new faces, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo in, in Milwaukee, there's all these kind of rising powers that the NBA is really fortunate to have and also has marketed them really well, by the way. You, you, we can compare it to baseball. I mean, people know the star players on every single NBA team. I don't think you can do that in, the, in, in baseball. So I think the playoffs will build upon that. Damian Lillard, you just you can just throw these names out there, uh, and, and you'll tune into them. You'll stick on the game if it's close. Hmm. And I think it's going to be a very good playoffs. We'll see what the, what the competitive level is. But you're kind of seeing the, you know, the transition maybe from LeBron Warriors to another team. If not, then you'll see them staving it off, and that'll be compelling. I, no one's going to 16 and one in these playoffs like last season, like the Warriors did. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bet on anything. But if if I had to predict, I would say these ratings are going to be very good. I think the, the playoff series are very evenly matched, much more so than in previous seasons. And also, San Antonio may not be in it for very long, so that will be good for the ratings. Also, <laughs> I don't want to bag on San Antonio, but that is a for sure ratings depressor when they're when they go too far. So I, I think it's it sets up well for the NBA. They've set themselves up for this by the careful kind of curating of stars and building of personalities, and then you've got LeBron in the East and you got the Warriors in the West. It works out quite nicely for them, Robert. I think as long as LeBron is in the league, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> that, that's kind of my theory on it because there's an equal amount of LeBron hate, and it's very passionate, and there's an equal uh, amount of LeBron standing, which is also very passionate. So he's, to me, the, star, the, the, you know, the, 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 what, the straw that stirs the drink. As long as LeBron is around and in the finals, I think everything is okay. Now, if we get something like a Houston-Toronto series or something like that, I don't know. I, I think the ratings would, you know, take a hit because the star is always going to be LeBron. And I do agree that the Warriors' vulnerability uh, does help because it kind of takes that, okay, we're just trying to get to the Cavs and the Warriors. You don't get that feeling this year. You feel like it's going to be some competition involved, but I think the ratings live or die with LeBron. And as long as LeBron is chasing and the whole thing, will he stay, will he go, will he get another ring, is he better than Jordan? You know, all of that stuff I think people care about. LeBron is, I don't want to say he's bigger than the game, but he is getting to that transcendent level is that singularly he can make or break uh, a rating. So if you're, you know, the executives at ABC, uh, ESPN or whatever, uh, TNT, uh, you want LeBron to make it to the finals. You want it to be a little bit of a struggle, of course, but you want him in those finals. And it, to me, it doesn't really matter who it's against. Uh, as long as he's there, I think everything's going to be all right because he's the lightning rod more than anybody else. Yeah, I'd be really yeah, curious. No yeah, I'd be curious to no see question. if it's uh, if it's Cavs Warriors Part Three. Uh, I mean, the part number four. Part four, four. I tell you about. Yeah, numbers are going to be good, four. but um, you do. I always, you know, you do wonder does fatigue set in. But it's a different kind of year. Uh, LeBron is a new cast. Warriors are vulnerable. 
So that creates its own sort of storylines unique to twenty to twenty eighteen. I'm uh, I'm really fascinated as to what's going to yeah, happen. I agree on the ratings. Although there's a Toronto co- co-host uh, with a talk show who might yes. want the Raptors in the finals. I, don't I would know. love to thinking. see. Yeah, the ra- <laughs> individually the Raptors help me professionally. <laughs> So I'm not going to lie. It should be noted. It should be noted. Yeah, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm, listen abso- I'm absolutely would love to see them in the finals. Uh, I was feeling pretty good about it, Tim, like three weeks ago, and then it's an yeah, ugly stretch yeah. for the Raps. Uh, Number 23 on the, on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah. Have a big prom for the Raps. They're going to get the Cavs in the second round. That's rough. I was hoping that would yep. be uh, third yep. round. All right, Robert, uh, Tim, you're welcome to weigh in, but I have no idea if you're interested in this. Robert, we'll do a couple seconds on <laughs> WrestleMania. Um, the show... What did that show last? Sixty-five hours. It was seven hours, I think. Um, which seven is hours and fifteen minutes. Incredible, incredible that they go that long. Although that's become now par for the course. It seemed like the reviews, generally speaking, at least in terms of pr- production, were pretty good. Um, and I thought there were moments there that were really, really exceptional. Particularly the Rousey, Kurt Angle, Triple H, Stephanie match. I think Rousey last night sort of vaulted herself up into. WWE stardom, but just as a, uh, since we're talking media here, Robert, as a production, as a long seven-hour television production, what did you like yesterday? What didn't you like? Well, it's always beautifully shot. I mean, it's a spectacular event, and if you've ever been there live, you really know how spectacular it is, Uh, but on TV, you really get that feel, you know, that you're there. It it has a bigger, uh, WWE makes it a bigger-than-life type of feel. It feels like a Super Bowl. It feels like an NBA Finals. It feels like a Masters. Uh, so you feel like it's a big event. And if you look just from a media perspective, you know, I like to look a lot, you know, online and social media, how they're reacting to it. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure WrestleMania, uh, when you look at trending and, and conversation, got more tweets than the Masters. So, you know, there are people who watches wrestling and blah, blah. It's big. It's always big. And, and you know, I know, Richard, you talked about Fox possibly coming in and taking WWE Raw uh, over the UFC. So this is, you know, big-time stuff. So uh, to me, it's a a big event. I I think it could, it would be better if they cut it to maybe four hours because even for the crowd, uh, it's just very difficult to do anything for seven hours. Like they're at work, they're at a job. Uh, And you saw that toward the end of WrestleMania uh, where they just, they just, they were running out of gas. I mean, they just, it was like triple overtime. They were just, running out of gas. So the front half was great. I thought the back half uh, struggled a bit because of the audience, because of the length, and because of some of the match uh, decisions that they made. Do you think uh, Do you think the Reigns-Lesnar match got hurt because, and I think you, you, the answer, your answer is going to be yes, obviously, but do you, think they, do you think part of the reason maybe the fans were getting on Reigns and, and the fans were not as alive for that match was because they had just sat for so long that – it's just impossible at that point to get the energy, even though that is that was essentially the the, the main event of the night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. Just like we talked at the beginning of the show, is people already had this preconceived notion uh, about Reigns and Lesnar before you know the show even started, and then you take in seven hours of alcohol and exhaustion and emotional ups and downs, and they just they're just fed up with it. It's it's a problem that the WWE has had with WrestleMania over the last, you know, four or five years is the placement, uh, you know, of the matches uh, and, the, and the timing of it. And it, it, just, it just seems that if you do that match in the middle, 
maybe it's it's received a little bit better. Maybe I agree. It's the way it's, it's you know, but by doing it at the end, it's like okay, it's like even the swerve didn't work. When the swerve doesn't work, and that's your ending, it, it, it just felt flat. It's like a it's like a great movie that's great for two hours, and then you know the the ending, the ten minutes, like that's it, that was the ending. You know, it it, it just it just felt bad. Not and you know I, I make fun of Rain. Uh, but it's not Reigns' fault. I mean, he, you know, he's booked. You know, that's, this is what you do. You know, it's like putting, telling a point guard to play center. I mean, he's doing what they're asking him to do. It just, it just hasn't never come across the way that I think they wanted it to. All right, last one, and then we'll bring Tim back here. I know Tim is just fascinated <laughs> by this conversation. Uh, I am, but, but probably more, more so than by WrestleMania itself, I'm fascinated by the conversation. So, Robert, so, here, here's my thing. It's, very, it, it's the one, I think, if you, if you were looking at the odds makers – the one stunning upset yesterday was that Reigns won. I'm sorry, that Lesnar won. Oh. People were thinking Lesnar's going to UFC. Uh, oh. Vince McMahon has been wanting Reigns, it seems like, to be the guy forever. This seemed to be the final, the moment where the, the, the quote-unquote torch is passed. That did not happen. Thus, as you look forward, are we going to see Reigns somehow win this title very quickly? Or can they somehow actually like continue to keep Lesnar holding the belt for another year. It seems – I'm just curious as, as how they're going to get it off him because it seems like they're going to have to get it off him somehow. Uh, it's, 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 to me, it's an either-or. Either it happens immediately, like tonight, or you know, the next pay-per-view. Yep. Or they're going to keep it on them to SummerSlam and move Reigns out of it because they finally come to the conclusion that that's not working and maybe move Braun Strowman in or someone else. Oh, they could do that. Finn yep. Balor, you know, so, someone different. To give it a breath of fresh air. Uh, so it's easy to go to I think we'll know by the end of Raw tonight, you know, exactly what direction uh, they're going in. And just one last point. Uh, I just want to say that I did agree with you on Ronda Rousey. Uh, I think they did an excellent job booking her. I think she can have an excellent future uh, in the WWE. Uh, she has to kind of be booked the proper way. But she shows, you know, outstanding athleticism and other things that you would want to see out of any, you know, strength. I mean, she picked up Triple H like that. I was like, oh, my God, I was, I was impressed myself by that. And uh, I, I, thought, I thought she did a very good job. And I know a lot of people get on Rousey. I've gotten on Rousey for things before. But she seems so happy uh, in the WWE, much more happy in the WWE than she was uh, in the UFC, even before uh, she thought, you know, getting kicked in the head and knocked out. Totally agree. She was phenomenal. Great performer last night. Uh, was like an out-of-sight shape. And basically, as you saw, like you saw the physical strength. You know, people like, people knock Rousey, but like, you know, the, the people forget this is an Olympian. I mean, we're talking about a high, high, high caliber athlete. Mm-hmm. And if you could figure out a way to perform in the ring, and that's a lot of that, Robert, as you know, is just reps and training, et cetera. The framework's there. I mean, you're already working yeah. with an Olympian. You're not working with, like, some schmo off the street. So um, I, I'm with you. They booked that perfectly, and I think it did a lot for her. And paying tribute to Piper, I, I think she had a great night. Mm-hmm. More than anybody else, she had the best night, I thought, um, mm-hmm. of anyone. All right, Tim, we're now moving back to the real <laughs> sports world here. Um, what do you think of uh, – Patrick Reed, um, not just winning, but in the after effects, after effects, I don't know if that's the right word, but in the aftermath of his win, we saw a lot of stuff on Patrick Reed and his estranged family and the sort of the backstory on that. That's not something we got really on CBS. And I wonder just what your observation is of uh, 
these next day stories, which really go deeper into read that we didn't necessarily learn on CBS. Yeah. And I was really interested because, you know, I'd heard some of these, I'm a golf guy. So I know I, I read a lot more about it, follow maybe more than most people do, certainly more than the general masters audience even. Uh, and so I was going to, I was curious about how CBS was going to play it. Uh, and they were straight about it, but you could definitely tell, you know, Jim Nance you know, has a tear in his eye when some, some guys win, you know, Spieth or whoever, especially Texans. And, and that clearly was not the emotion of Patrick Reed winning, even though he's, you know, got got a background, uh, long background in golf. It's just an interesting, you know, CBS and the Masters aren't going to deal with a lot of the the, the kind of the more difficult issues with players. They're just not. Uh, and it was clear that they were just going to cover it as a tournament, and it wasn't going to be the big emotional CBS Masters coverage with Patrick Reed. And the crowd did not respond the same way. And that's what everyone kind of cute keyed off of, and it was true. That putt on 18 to win, there was applause, but it wasn't raucous. The, the, the noise was, was for Jordan Spieth. The noise was for the other guys, and they were hoping it was Rory McIlroy. And the stories that came out of were the natural stories. This is a player who's been estranged from his family. This is a player who is not the most popular on, on tour, who has had some incidents uh, in college and through, through episodes here and there on tour. And what we know, I've, I've, I've criticized CBS, you've done it too, Richard, in the past. They don't want to deal with the interesting stuff if, if it's a little bit tough to deal with. And that's what we saw. And, and maybe it was a lesser broadcast because of it, because you just, it was weird. You're like, if you didn't know, you're kind of, this is a little subdued. This is not like the joyous thing you normally see. You know, when Phil Mickelson wins at Augusta, it's, you know, CBS is enraptured. And I understand that. It's part of the story. The stories about Patrick Reed are going to be complicated for golf. Golf does not love kind of tricky personalities the way the NBA or the NFL can deal with them. Uh, and he's not a, lo- a lovable guy. He's just not. He's a fiery competitor with some other things going on, and CBS wasn't going to deal with it. They just were not going to deal with it. And it's just a sign of the way they cover the Augusta, the Masters. It's the sign of, uh, to me, of a network that doesn't like this stuff anyway in sports. And Patrick Reed is going to be a tricky issue for them moving forward. I, I just really believe that. And the Masters is a great television show. I've always it's an incredible television show, but it's so controlled. It can be contrived. And we saw a little bit of that overlap with Patrick Reed. It is just not quite the, the champion that they're used to there. And it didn't quite fit the way they like to portray. And I'm saying, the people at Augusta National and at CBS, because we know Augusta National essentially runs that broadcast. Uh, and so we saw some of those kind of overruns in this coverage. And I was interesting to watch it. it was, there's no question it was happening. Yeah, there's no doubt that I think, you know, if you put them on truth serum, they would have loved Jordan Spieth to make the run yeah. all the way to uh, well, Tiger. To they would, Tiger is the one they would have loved. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Barring that, absolutely Jordan Spieth. Robert, do uh, you have any thoughts on this? Just uh, I think I thought Tim was really eloquent on just – very not an easy story for CBS to do. Patrick Reed just given all the backstory with him. So I mean, I guess you know you guys just mentioned Tiger Woods. I, I'm just curious if Tiger was you know we saw a lot of these old Tiger stories kind of pop up uh, in various ways before the Masters as a show that you know he showed he was you know feeling a little bit better and possibly could be in contention. You know how would they had handled that in comparison? Uh, to, to what they actually did. But I, I do agree that CBS, 
there's always kind of been a network, like you said, that tries to stay away uh, from this, these type of issues. Uh, you know, I don't think of CBS as kind of the groundbreaking uh, type of place that is going to talk about that type of stuff. Uh, it's interesting, though, because when we see different athletes in different sports having different types of issues, they're covered uh, differently depending on the sport. Like you said, if this was an NBA guy or an NFL guy, probably be talked about, you know, differently. You see it with – Conor McGregor in a fighting sport, you know, if that was an NBA player, if that was Cam Newton or whatever, uh, it would be covered differently. So I think golf, I mean, golf is golf. I, I just, scandal in golf doesn't really go together, and it's always kind of pushed to the back. I mean, your film, Nicholson had the insider trading and stuff like, you never really, that never really gets to the forefront. So, I mean, I don't know if it's the sport, if it's how it's covered, it's the audience, I, I'm not sure, uh, but I think this is the type of story it's going to just go away. Like, we're going to talk about it today, but by Wednesday, no one's going to care again and won't care again uh, unless he's in, in line for another major championship. Well, the one thing there, Robert, that you did mention, and um, CBS did did talk about this prior to the tournament, and was even if Tiger Woods is not in contention on the final day, there's a halo effect just if he can get to that final two days. Their final round coverage of the Masters – was up 14% from last year, 2% from 2016. ESPN's coverage was up whatever it was, 30%, 40% over the first two days from the year before. That's all Tiger Woods uh, generated, no the, the halo no that surrounds that guy. Um, but, Robert, too, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I, my guess is, and this is just a guess, that had Tiger been in contention and he was going for the win, we would have not have heard of any of the stuff from – uh, you know, Thanksgiving Day so long ago, it would have been about like here's one of the greatest redemption, you know, comeback stories of all time. We would that that would have been CBS would not have touched anything no. tough in my opinion on Tiger, even the self inflicted stuff, and it just would have been a celebration of him winning again. Tim, you agree yeah, with that? One, that's that's my guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, one weird little sidelight is that Tiger has very little relationship with CBS. I'm sure Richard, you know that. Um, you know, they they love him winning tournaments, obviously, and he wants to win as many tournaments, whoever the broadcaster is. But he doesn't love the CBS coverage. He he isn't he, through the years. You know, who knows now? It's 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 so different. His career is so different now. But you know, they're they're a Phil Mickelson, Freddie Couples, Jordan Spieth network right. for golf. They're not. You know, Tiger. I'm sure they would have loved the embrace from Tiger. But you know, you never see him up in the booth with Jim Nance. You just don't, and Nance has written about this, yeah. that, that he and Tiger have very little. Tiger's an ES, so be, Tim, Tim, Tiger's to me is an ESPN yep, guy, buddies with yep. Van Pelt, right? He's always Absolutely. gone on Mike and Mike. That's, that's his, interestingly enough, that's his network. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. Uh, and, and a little Johnny Miller too, by the way, that's yeah. really inside golf stuff, but uh, he kind of likes the byplay. He kind of likes the bite. And what, what do we know about Jim Nance is there's no bite. And, and I think there's some of that, and you know, and maybe some of this is Tiger's just, his personality, but obviously, beside the point, they, Masters and and CBS would have loved Tiger to be in contention. It would have been a huge story, uh, but that's not their guy. It, he's not their guy. Their guy, if you just go back through, it, is Phil Mickelson over the long haul, and it's a you know, and I think they would love for it to be Jordan Spieth. They would love for Spieth to do three or four Masters in a row uh, because he's their kind of golfer. He's their audience. Uh, and I like Spieth a lot myself. I'm not ripping Spieth here at all, or anybody. Just saying this is the way that's kind of fallen into the grooves. If you really know the coverage, 
you know that Tiger is yeah, he's absolutely an ESPN guy. He's in other sports. He likes to talk about other sports. He likes the back and forth. He goes to the NBA games. Uh, that's not the Masters. That's not CBS very much. It's just an interesting little fold to this. Uh, but by the way, if yeah, he had won, the ratings would have gone crazy. He yeah. would have gone bonk. I can't even imagine. Uh, all right, before I let you two guys go, is there anything else you guys want to hit on on the uh, the first ever roundtable <laughs> on the sports media po- on the rich sports media podcast with Richard Deitch or whatever we're calling? I'm this. just I'm just proud <laughs> to be on the number one the, the, the first inaugural out of 600 of them, but the inaugural one on this platform. Very proud to be <laughs> yes. glad to do thanks, it. Thanks, Tim. You're the, the, the overwhelming uh, pride that you've shown <laughs> from that comment is coming through. Robert, anything you want to add or plug before we get out of here? Yeah, Richard, look, this is what I want you to do. I need you to start doing more fighting sports. I need I need more. Look, Floyd Mayweather almost got shot in the drive-by shooting. <laughs> Conor McGregor's throwing dollies and buses. I know. Dana White is doing doing 500 interviews lying about how he, he's really upset when he knows this is good promotion for the UFC. I need, I need you more in the fighting sports. We got Deontay Wilder saying he's going to kill a man in the ring. Joshua. We got good stuff going on in it's, the fighting Robert, sports. It, Robert, it, it was a yeah, crazy yeah. weekend in that. And, uh, and Conor McGregor was taken into custody not too far from where I live. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right where you're at. <laughs> I know it's crazy. You're right. I'll I'll get more on that. I mean, uh, more, get on it. You, I mean, Dana White's not dumb. He needs that television rights deal to be uh, signed, right? So, might as well create hey, some got, uh, controversy. I got an idea for y'all. Check this out: the the the, the athletic boxing in UFC. I can be in charge. That's I can be the editor. Go tell the owners right now. Uh, there you go. Check. A contract. I, I will handle it for you. I run the whole thing. I got I got boxing and UFC writers all over the world. You're talking. Look, I just gave you guys a million dollar idea. Right there. <laughs> you're talking. Tim Kawakami is right there no, with the you. owner, so you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> Maybe in proximity, but uh, all these things happen at a level so far high above you right. that you can't even. Yeah. I can't even see that level. I meant proximity. But by the way, with my, with my boxing background, I'm not going to argue any of that. By the way. Yeah. All right. Robert Littell is the uh, founder and uh, editor and writer for Black Sports Online. Follow him at BSO. Tim Kawakami is the uh, editor as well as the uh, writer for the Athletic Bay Area. And and check please check out the uh, Tim Kawakami podcast, which is the TK Show. Is that right? Yep. All yeah, right. And right. Robert, what is your uh, t- title of your BSO podcast? BSO Live with Robin Littell. Okay, BSO Live. So check those two fine podcasts out. Guys, thank you very much. You will definitely be back, and uh, and I will, uh, I'll be talking to you very soon. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Robert. Uh, thanks. Thank you. All right, my thanks to uh, Tim Kawakami and Robert Littell. They will both be back for sure. But now we bring in the final roundtable of this podcast. It is Charlotte Wilder, a writer from SB Nation, you heard her before when I did the Sports Illustrated podcast. And Chad Finn, who has made himself uh, essentially uh, be the sports media podcast guest of choice. He's done Jimmy Trainer's show. He's done mine. I assume he'll do others as well. He is the fine sports media writer for the Boston Globe. Charlotte and Chad, welcome to the sp- – <laughs> What are we calling this, Lou? Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. I believe that's the official title. Um, Thanks, Richard. Happy to be here. Yes. Welcome to Episode 1. Thanks, Rich. All right. Charlotte, we will eventually get to your WrestleMania obsession based on your tweets yesterday. (laughs) But before we do do that, I want to ask you guys about Facebook and the, uh, not Cambridge Analytica, although I'm sure we can get into that if you really want it. Um, But their... um, 
Their broadcast last week of their first MLB game, this was an exclusive to Facebook, the Mets uh, and Phillies. And it's an interesting, I guess, experiment, if you want to call it. Facebook paid about $30, $35 million, according to Bloomberg, for the rights to exclusively stream 25 MLB games this year, mostly games on Wednesday afternoons. Charlotte, I'll start with you. One, did you see it? And if you did, do you have any thoughts on it? And two, what do you just... What do you think of the long-term implications? Do you get a sense that this is yet again the beginning of Facebook really trying to be a big-time player in the in the live sports media marketplace? Yeah, um, you know, I didn't see it. I've I've read a lot about it and sort of seen a few clips and stuff, and saw that there were some glitchy issues, which does not surprise me at all. Um, but I, I think that it does. I think Facebook is really leaning hard into. Uh, sports fandom and leveraging its platform around users who are already there for their athletes. They like, you know, I, uh, I wrote about um, the Tom vs. time documentary that Facebook watch is producing and um, talked to a few of their executives and, and they seem to realize that, you know, there's already this built in audience in terms of people who've clicked like on an athlete or a team's page. And, for athletes, it's a great way to go right to their fans. But I, I think Facebook is wising up to the fact that, uh, you know, sports fans care a lot. And if you care a lot, you know, it, it's not so much if you build it, they will come. It's that they're already there. So just, like, put up a stage. Um, I personally don't love the idea of having games be exclusive to Facebook. I think there's something great about being able to turn on your TV and see it and not have to go through Facebook or through, you know, dealing with comments. I find a lot of that distracting in terms of the user interface. Um, but, yeah, I think Facebook is is totally leaning into this, and it's just a little peek of what's to come of, of what they're going to try to do, assuming people don't abandon the platform because they're giving out their private information. Hmm. Uh, Chad, that's interesting, Charlotte. Chad, uh, to follow up on that first, did you see, did you see the Mets-Phillies game on Facebook? I did. I watched a few innings of it just to kind of get the uh, the gist of, of what it was going to be like. Good. What did you give 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 us a sense of what you thought of the presentation, the production, and whether you think this is suitable or sustainable? Like you know, three years from now, masses of people watching it on Facebook. Yeah, it seemed pretty uh, pretty similar to me. I mean, the the, the complaints I heard about it were uh, number one, what Charlotte cited that it was uh, glitchy, and it was. I couldn't tell if it was their feed, their broadcast, or just something going on with my computer, but it seemed to stall all the time. Uh, it was uh, not necessarily a pleasant user experience, but in terms of watching a game, it was like watching it on MLB TV or anything else, at least uh, the, the few innings that I saw. Uh, most of the complaining otherwise I heard about it was from New York fans who were mad that, the, that it was on there and they had to seek it out, and it was, uh, it was similar to what you heard when uh, Yahoo picked up an NFL game, whatever it was, the Jaguars or whoever, a couple of lousy teams earlier this year, and they've done that a couple of times, where uh, I want to watch, the, the mindset is I want to watch football the way I'm used to watching it. And I think it was similar with this, where people still aren't acclimated, the fans still aren't acclimated to going to the computers uh, and watching something in a place they're not used to watching it. So I think the gripes are sort of natural there, that they have to do something different and. The masses usually don't like to do that. They like things. Uh, they like to be set in their ways, and so I think that was 
fundamentally, most of the backlash about this was uh, just that it was unfamiliar. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit glitchy, but it wasn't uh, wasn't jarringly so or too, too annoying uh, or anything along those lines. I, I think they did generally pretty well for their first time out with it. Charlotte, I want to, um, and maybe this, uh, maybe the parallel doesn't exist, but it's interesting to me. Do you see um, sports fans at all having? Um, how do I sort of phrase this? Facebook clearly has gotten about as much negative publicity and news as it's gotten ever, and there are rightful reasons for that. Mark Zuckerberg's going to be talking to Congress in a couple of days as we tape this. Do you think sports fans heading forward might have any kind of animus towards Facebook if they get sports rights given what is going on with Facebook away from sports? Um. Yeah, I do. You know, I think that sports fans, when we talk about sports fans, we're talking about a huge swath of the population. And, um, you know, there's some people who are probably super up to date on current events uh, who understand, you know, what's going on with Cambridge Analytica, what the whole scandal is, what what Zuckerberg's doing, how they're trying to handle it, um, you know, the the sort of more news that keeps coming out about how many people's information was actually given away. Um, And I think that there are sports fans who have no clue, you know, who are completely oblivious. I think it's like any section of the population. Um, I think, though, that the more negative press Facebook keeps getting, regardless of what people know about the specifics or how much they care. um, Yeah, I I think people might be kind of turned off, uh, especially if they're wary of using the service and, you know, having their information on that platform still. at the end of the day, I feel like Facebook kind of has its tentacles too far into our digital lives for it to make a huge difference in the short term. I don't know about long term, um, but I, I think enough people are sort of grandfathered in at this point, um, especially probably older fans, that I would be surprised if it made an immediate dent in their viewership. Interesting. Chad, do you want to weigh in on that before we move off uh, Facebook and baseball? Rich, I just want to use Facebook to uh, to find out which friend's character I am. I, I don't want it for my uh, sports broadcast. Or any, I, I, I want to know where I'm getting the game from, and I want it to always be the same place I always get the game from. That's, that's not me speaking there. That's the reaction I will inevitably get from any sports fan up here in Boston or uh, nationally when it affects them. It's, uh, it, it's just a matter of people's tastes and people's habits and uh, I think if you transferred all Mets games to Facebook and that suddenly became the regional rights holder, uh, you know, Facebook, New York, or whatever it happened to be, um, people would adjust eventually. But the, the, the complaining would uh, be pretty raucous for a while until, until people get used to that being their habit. But I don't think all of the issues that are going on with Facebook right now would, uh, would have much of an impact on on. Uh, on sports fans, if, if they did get involved in sports even more, I think the audience would translate. Charlotte, uh, last year you watched WrestleMania, having never seen a minute of pro wrestling before. This year, <laughs> uh, you're tweeting out like wrestling stuff, like you're Stephanie McMahon, basically. Um, <laughs> so you have a piece up on SB Nation um, that recaps WrestleMania 34. You were obviously assigned to watch the entire. Event. I'm not sure if you watched all seven plus hours, if you did pre-show, but uh, I talked a little bit about this with Robert Littell. As somebody who still sort of has fresh eyes on professional wrestling and WrestleMania, uh, I'm just mm-hmm. curious as your kind of your top line thoughts in terms of what you saw last night and just 
um, what was a, I mean, you know, just think about it in sports terms. If you watched a seven-hour production, that's what we got yesterday. Yeah, uh, I watched the five-hour production. Um, I did not watch the the matches before the actual thing started um, because I needed to preserve some sanity. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, first of all, I've been really sort of moved by how the wrestling community has embraced me when I sort of dive in and, and parachute in for these things. Um, I think there's something really kind of incredible about how people care about this and and the depth to which they feel about it. Um, I really admire that. I think in terms of the broadcast or in terms of the show itself, um, first of all, I realized I hadn't canceled my trial subscription from last year. So I have been paying for wrestling for a year without (laughs) watching any of it. Nice. Um, Yeah, really, really good move on my part. Uh, You're welcome, McMahon. But um, I thought that, a, a mistake they made is the Charlotte um, Oscar match to me was the strongest. Um, and I thought a lot of the women were actually way more compelling than some of the all men matches they put in, um, especially more so than Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, who was the main event uh, that they put last. And I kind of wish WWE had just gone with it and, and made the women the main event and, you know, realized that, if the wrestling is that good and the storyline is that compelling and the stakes are that high, fans are going to be there for it. Um, I think WWE is a great example of how, how women's sports are. People care. People are there for it. And if you cover it, they will come. And I, I just, I really was psyched by, um, by how much, how, how well they did and how much fans in the crowd seemed to respond to it. Uh, did you, uh, Somebody got a, it's almost like a horn in the background there. Is that you, Chad, or is that you, Charlotte? Sorry, that was my New York City street outside my window. (laughs) Nice. The one thing, before I get to you, Chad, because I'm going to guess you didn't watch a minute of WrestleMania. Uh, Charlotte, as a uh, as a fairly newcomer to the to the to the sport to the to to sports entertainment, um, what did you make of Ronda Rousey's debut, uh, in ring debut, in terms of a match? Because to me, as someone who's watched it for a long time, I thought she totally killed it i mean you could not in my oh, yeah. opinion have had a better debut now she's working with two longtime great performers and stephanie mcmahon and triple h their whole jobs to basically put her over i.e make her strong make her a crowd favorite but she totally came to to deal she was in phenomenal shape she was um you saw how strong we uh, strong she was just basically picking up a couple guys and throwing them over she so picked up triple h yeah she could not have had i thought a better a better first WrestleMania. I think it's really going to go a long way with any of the skeptics uh, out there. And there certainly had been some skeptics in the WWE universe. Oh yeah. I could not agree with you more. Uh, She killed it. She was absolutely incredible. And it was funny because watching the promo before the match, she seemed a little stiff. Um, And I was kind of like, Oh God, you know, I, she felt more like an athlete than a performer. Right. Um, and I was a little worried about it. And then she got in the ring and was just completely larger than life. She leaned into the role of, you know, she was a total face. She, she was physically just unbelievable. I mean, she picked up Triple H, put him over her shoulders, just destroyed Stephanie McMahon um, and, and really performed the whole time. I mean, there was passion there. She was, she was working the crowd. I was, totally blown away and I was really psyched because I think that you know this is 
this is going to be something that can last. I think a lot of people were skeptical. I was certainly skeptical. And then she got in the ring and I just, I was so jacked up. I thought I was going to go kick down a door. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chad, did you watch a minute of this or no? I'm going to guess you were probably glued to Sunday night baseball with Alex Rodriguez, Jessica Mendoza and Matt Vasgersian. That is what I was watching. Yeah. And that, I think that game was roughly as long as WrestleMania. The, uh, you know, seven hours is your typical Sunday night baseball broadcast. So I don't know what the, what's the big deal about WrestleMania being that long. All right. So Chad, stay with me on this. Cause we'll, 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 cause I, I, I did not watch it and I'm glad you did. So somebody can sort of inform me. So Alex Rodriguez made, I guess a lot of news by saying that he, he would have gone to the Mets or he would have given the Mets like Clearly, the whole broadcast yeah. is about Alex Rodriguez. That's essentially what ESPN has decided to do. So what happened yep. yesterday in terms of what did he say that made news? Yeah, he was talking about his free agency in, uh, what year was it, 2000, when he ended up signing that $252 million contract with the Rangers. Uh, and he said his preference was to go to the Mets. And uh, that did make news. And I think it also should have probably raised people's skepticism who remember uh, what that time was like when he hit free agency as the most marketable and appealing player in baseball than maybe his teammate at the time, Ken Griffey. Uh, he went for the money. He went to Texas, and, and because they gave him that money, I recognize nobody else came close, but uh, just to suggest that he would have considered the Mets, I feel like he would have considered the Mets if they offered him $252 million and $1, but if it were uh, 240 I can't imagine knowing what we know about him and, and how that all played out and how Scott Boris handled it, that that was a real option. I don't think anybody ever thought he wanted to go to uh, New York and compete directly with Derek Jeter either. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of that, uh, having those two guys sort of the maze and mantle, I guess, at the time in, there, in New York City. But uh, I, I kind of wonder if this is going to be a habit with A-Rod where there's a little bit of – revisionism of history or he says things to make news that maybe uh, weren't quite accurate with how it was portrayed at the time and how he talked about it at the time. So uh, it's going to be interesting to watch him. He is very, uh, the, the broadcast is very focused on him. And I couldn't help but wonder last night uh, if Dan Schulman was still the play-by-play guy there, whether maybe it would have been reined in a little bit more. He was really good at balancing things between uh, the two people in the booth with him and uh, Matt Vasgersian really didn't do that. It was the A Rod show last night. Yeah, it's a little hard. I mean, you know, you could sort of live with a lot of the, you know, retelling of the new A Rod story, but at a certain point, it it becomes a little ridiculous when he's he's really trying to just rechange narratives and history. You know, we're not so far away from Alex Rodriguez lying to basically everybody, as well as accusing Selena right. Roberts of breaking into his house in Florida. So, um, it's been really, really interesting, uh, to sort of watch that. Uh, Charlotte, you watch any of the masters or were you just so focused on WrestleMania? (laughs) I did actually, uh, I watched the masters a lot on Saturday, um, because I knew that I would be a little bit occupied, um, or at least gearing up to be occupied on Sunday. Um, I really liked when Rory was in the Azaleas um, trying to pitch out of there. I really identified with that as a uh, Does that happen as my to, golf career. Does that happen to you a lot? You're trying to pitch out of Azaleas frequently? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, my golf game is like I'll have an incredible hole. I'll, I'll like get par, which for me is amazing. Um, and then the next hole I'll, I'll do like a Sergio Rodriguez completely, um, except I'll be just like laughing the whole time. And then the next hole I'll be good again. So 
you know, this master's really felt very personally um, relatable and a little bit validating. I was really grateful for some meltdowns. Uh, always nice to see golfers be human, in my opinion. Yeah, it's cool. I, when uh, I'm not the biggest golf fan, but it always is interesting when, like, a Sergio Garcia has, like, a whatever, a 97 on a hole or something like that. It was kind of a, <laughs> right. It was interesting to see. Chad, did you watch any of this? One of the things that I got into with Kawakami before uh, your segment was um, – so many of the stories um, uh, about Patrick Reed uh, today focus on estranged family, just things that necessarily didn't hit the CBS broadcast. A little bit darker, a lot more realism, I thought, today, where yesterday, and maybe this is always true with the Masters, you sort of got the, for lack of a better word, maybe the vanilla version. Yeah, imagine that. The master's not telling you the whole story about something. <laughs> right. it, uh, I did watch it yesterday, and it was it was really compelling because uh, you know how the microphones are at, at, at the master's on CBS and ESPN. We hear the, the birds chirping, and maybe they're even real birds. It doesn't sound piped in most of the time. Uh, it's very managed and controlled, and you, you can really get a sense for who the who the fan favorites are and who the fan favorites aren't. And it was, uh, it was awkward. It was really strange when Reed, you know, Spieth, Spieth made his run and made up, what was it, nine shots and, and looked like he was going to uh, surpass him. And then, you know, petered out a little bit over the last two holes and then Fowler had a shot at it as well. But Reed held on and it was almost like this giant sigh among the crowd when, when, uh, when it was obvious that he was going to win, that he wasn't going to melt on 18 or anything. And, uh, I've never really seen that watching the Masters, where there are always guys you're rooting, uh, the crowd is rooting for, they're always favorites, whether it's Tiger, Greg Norman at the time, whoever, but you never feel the outward um, disappointment when somebody else wins. It, it's sort of, it, it's at least polite. Uh, that yesterday felt like uh, people really didn't want to see that guy win, and I didn't, I'm not a huge golf fan. I didn't understand why. Then I went and read Shipnuck's uh, column, I think, for Golf.com this morning about his history and his background. And Dave Kindred wrote a good column about it as well and some other writers. And uh, I understand now why why uh, people weren't thrilled to see this guy win, but it made for pretty compelling television yesterday. Uh, all right. as we, uh, We'll end with this because you two are Boston types. Um, all right, Charlotte, quick answers. Will Gronkowski be uh, on the Patriots in 20? 20- uh, 2018 nine, hyphen 19. Yes. Chad? I was just glad to see him not show up at WrestleMania. So <laughs> I, that, uh, that seemed to be his other option. Yes, he will be here and uh, he'll be, he'll be, uh, just be as good as ever. Charlotte, off the top of your head, what is the Patriots regular season record? Uh, whoo, five and 11. Whoa. I mean, 11 and five. 11, 11 and, five. and five. Wow. That would have been amazing. Sorry. Uh, Chad. Sorry, they're gonna they're gonna win eleven. They're gonna lose. Five. Okay, eleven to five. That gets them in the playoffs. Chad. Yeah, you know if Brady suddenly uh, if it's Brian Hoyer's team, that five and eleven might not be too far off. But uh, I, I think they're uh, I think they're twelve and four. That seems to be what the, the dividing line is for them every year. All right, final two. Charlotte, how far are the Bruins going in the Stanley Cup playoffs? Mm, I want to say far, but not. Super far, I don't think. Chad, first round, I think. First round, wow, first round. That'd be the Maple Leafs taking them out. Chad, uh, East Finals. I think they get past Toronto here in the first round, but uh, they seem to have hit a little bit of a wall lately. All right, and finally, the Boston Red Sox are super hot. Uh, as I'm looking, yeah, this, they are. Yeah, are they? What are they, Chad? <laughs> Chad, eight and one or something like that? Am I right? Nine and one. 
Sounds right to me. Yeah, they just win every day, Rich. Okay, so Charlotte, how far are the Red Sox getting come October? Oh man, uh, if they can if they can make it past the Yankees, they're going to make it to the World Series. Now they're they're right now. They're the Yankees are five and five. The Red Sox are eight and one. The only team close. It well, looks good now. It uh, it looks good now, but I'm I'm a little bit wary of that Death Star lineup the Yankees have, but. If they can, if they can make it past them, I am saying World Series. Stroh's eight and two. Yeah, the the, Yan- the Yankees will sort of figure it out a little bit. All right, Chad, you uh, you've covered the Red Sox sort of on and off for a long time. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I picked uh, picked them to win the East in the paper, and the Yankees to uh, advance to the ALCS to play Houston. I think Houston's better than everybody. But the Red Sox are better than I expected them to be. It's a really good team. I think they get to the uh, day LCS, but don't get past the Astros. Same with me. They're better. Pitching's better than I expected. All right. Yeah. This is that concludes the uh, Yawkey Way uh, part of this podcast. Although isn't Yawkey Way basically they're killing that name, right? This, that's done now, right? They sh- that should be done. Or am I wrong about have that? Have they changed it yet? They're going to change it. I don't know if they've. Uh, yeah, they're going to. I don't know if they have it. Now get out of here with that Tom Yawkey way. Let's let's call it something. Let's call it Poppy way or something like that. Um, yeah, Shaughnessy's very opposed to that one, but I would be all right with it. No, Shaughnessy. The guy the other day just took a big uh, uh, dump on uh, UConn basketball and Gino Ariama. I mean, with all of Dan Shaughnessy's coverage of that team, all three times I've seen him at the Final Four. Relax, Dan Shaughnessy. <laughs> all right, Charlotte Wilder. I'm sure that'll get back to him. Charlotte Wilder is. Uh, a senior writer, even if you're not, I'm calling you that, for SB Nation. <laughs> Are you a senior writer, Charlotte? I'm a staff writer, but uh, you can anyone can really call me whatever they want. Do I they have senior writers at uh, SB Nation or no? Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's we all kind of, you know, we have staff writers, we have people do features, we all kind of pitch in on everything. So All right, so she's a staff writer for SB Nation. <laughs> Chad Finn is the sports media writer for the Boston Globe as well as does your general columnist you see his work on boston.com uh, chad is there anything you want to promote before we get out of here i get nothing to promote man i, I never do all right well that's that's why you're a great guest you just you give your time <laughs> and you don't promote anything i need uh, a book idea well i mean you live in one of the great sports cities of in the world that should not be that tough to do a yeah to figure true. out if you want to do it in sports uh, you also live in a an interesting place just uh, culturally as well. So you, you get something. Find the agent. That's usually the key. Get an agent. Agent agent will hook you up with a literary editor. Literary editor will give you a book idea, and you're off to the races. All right, Charlotte. I need someone to write it, too. Well, yeah, that, that I can't help you with. Chad, I'll, I'll write it for you. Richard, before I go, did you know that Chad and I, we used to, our desks used to be like 10 feet away at Boston.com? Really? Oh, yeah, I used to go over and and bug Chad while he was trying to write and, like, make fun of him for having a stack of old newspapers on his desk. This is, this, this, uh... the new building, wouldn't they? Yeah, this, Charles, this had to be one of your early jobs, right? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was second job. It was that long ago. And then... No, no. And then you left, you left Boston for New York? For the, for the... Uh, for, well, I was in D.C. for a year. I was at USA Today and then SB Nation. So it's been a, been a weird ride, but here I am. I'm going to be honest with you. Thank the, thank, thank the Lord you got out of trunk in that nightmare. Good job getting out of there. <laughs> that is a horrible company. Uh, no offense to Charlotte Wilder's work at that company, but I'm the first to say. <laughs> None taken. Absolutely None taken. terrible. All right, Charlotte Wilder and Chad Finn, they will certainly be back as podcast 
roundtable guests as we get this thing going. Chad and Charles, have a great day. Thank you very much for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Rich. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, all my guests, uh, James Andrew Miller, Tim Kawakami, Robert Littell, Charlotte Wilder, and Chad Finn. This is episode one. Uh, Hopefully it will get better. And uh, we will continue to do the same format that I had at Sports Illustrated, and that'll be roundtables and long-form guests. In the next couple of weeks, I know I have Vern Lindquist coming up for a uh, an interview about his career and his life in sports broadcasting, and then I'll be announcing a ton of other people along the way. There'll be people that you've heard of and sometimes people that you haven't heard of so that um, I can bring you just interesting jobs in the sports media, and at least those of you who are long young can uh, can learn something from their process. I want to thank Lou Pellegrino. Not an easy thing to do to uh, put together this podcast with multiple parts. I thank him. And my thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for bringing this podcast back. Really appreciate it. Thanks to my employers, obviously, The Athletic and Sportsnet 590 of Toronto. For Lou Pellegrino, for the guests, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast. Podcast.